the Born to Be Mild podcast. Hey, hello, and welcome back to another brand new episode of Born to Be Mild. This is episode 31. I've got my man Ron Cabuno here with myself, Pete Crawford. In a year that seems to never lighten up, we've seen our four millionth COVID case in the U.S., pedophilia accusations sweeping the nation, and a massive explosion in Beirut. Yet we still have other topics to battle with today. So, Ron, what's going on? Yeah, so those are all kind of important, I guess you could say, but I got attacked by wasps this week. Yeah, so, and I'm not talking about Protestants either. I'm talking about actual little assholes that came out of a nest in a tree in my front yard while I was mowing. So that actually sounds that. easier than the Protestants, I'm not going to lie. Well, it depends on how gangly and or translucent they may be. Um, but, you know, my leg is still a little swelled up. Uh, but it wasn't too bad because I was able to actually take the wife and my tiny little one-year-old Vivian golfing at the Short Holes Par 3 golf course last night for her very first trip onto the links. And it was freaking awesome. She was even carrying clubs and walked damn near the whole nine holes herself. Outstanding. Yeah, it was pretty cool, man. So uh, there's hopefully going to be more of that to come. And um, how about you, man? What's been up with your week? Well, uh, as you know, I am back down in Florida again, so my audio is probably not as perfect as usual. But, um, yeah, it's really, really hot. And uh, as it would happen, my mother, who I am again staying with, her air conditioning broke in the third day that we were here. And, yeah, if you've been following along with my life, uh, she's moving into a new house as her old one had burnt down. So the air conditioning in a brand new home lasted about three weeks. They don't make them like they used to. (laughs) Yeah. And it's fortunate that those uh, Florida summers in the middle of August are never all that hot or humid. Uh, So, yeah. That's what I've heard. It's very tempting. I lost about 10 pounds during uh, the hours of noon to 2.30. You are just taking it right in stride and kicking it up a notch whenever you can, aren't you? I got to. That's the only way to live. Man. All right. Well, you know what? We're kicking it up a little notch on this show as well because we've got a little bit of a format change and we think you're all going to absolutely love it. Uh, We're going to be breaking down our main story of the week and then we're going to have what we are calling the mild meltdown where we break down a series of topics in in succession that uh, is a little more rapid than we're used to, but we want to make sure we get to everything in a timely fashion. So with that in mind, let's get to this week's main story this week's main story is when shutting up is a campaign strategy that's right so basically what we're dealing with uh in november of this year is we've got a couple candidates a couple septuagenarians that are going to be running for the highest office in the land Uh, Some people who optimistically still call it the leader of the free world. Um, Unfortunately, both of these men are not extremely popular, not even with their own parties in many cases. So in every election, it seems, for the past many years, lesser of two evils, right? This year seems to be more than ever reinforcing that case. Because these guys, every time they open their mouth, I swear to God, they lose between five to 10,000 votes. With every syllable, they lose votes. Um, 
the the number one thing we're going to talk about right off the bat here is Trump had an outstandingly terrible interview with that with uh, the the outlet Axios by uh, a man named Jonathan Swan who I wasn't familiar with until then. Ron, what happened? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's one for the ages now, and we're all going to remember it as when the press actually grew some balls because they put a print reporter in the chair, not just some TV anchor person. Right. Um, now, I mean, he was basically just dismantling Trump simply by asking follow-up questions. So when Trump wanted to give him a graph that seemed fairly rudimentary with four large bars in it, he had <laughs> plenty of other questions to ask, especially... Are you talking about deaths per um, inf- number of infections, or are you talking about deaths per uh, number of population? And w- to which Trump said, "Well, you can't do it that way." And actually, that is the way you should be doing it. Correct. Um, and he just had him ask him question after question because when Trump said, "You got to look at the charts, you got to look at the books, you got to look at all the uh, reports, the pamphlets." He said, what what books? What pamphlets? And the look on his face was just <laughs> precious. Um, it, was, it was really amazing because he did pander to him in a specific way because he was sitting there saying, listen, these people are very old and they look up to you. How can you be lying to them at a time like this? So um, he did give him his, his dues because he said, uh, you know what, Mr. Trump, you know, as he continued to talk about how the ratings were the most important thing, he said, I do not doubt your ability to draw a crowd. I've been following you for years. That is not what's in question right now. So he wanted to keep him on message, and it was really difficult. And then after he kept putting his foot in his mouth over and over again about testing, Swan wanted to go on to, like, the Russian bounty gate issue. And Trump's mm-hmm. like, oh, I'm not done. I want to talk about testing some more. So it continued from there. It just got more and more ridiculous, and everyone couldn't stop talking about how bad it was all week. So I figured we definitely have to bring that up as case in point as to when less is more. And I, obviously Trump will never learn that. So the question is, how much is he going to hurt himself by speaking from now until Election Day? I feel like that's kind of been the way that it's uh, been going on, really, for his entire uh, presidency to date. I th- I think that uh, the Trumpers forever, uh, the, the the MAGA people that have started with the red hats and are still wearing them, nothing really bothers them. But you had moderate voters in 2016 that were voting for him that are rapidly falling out every time this dude ends up in a situation like this. And it's hilarious because this is the tactic that he's been using uh, for the last three and a half years to get himself out of a situation where he's not comfortable answering or he's not informed enough to answer or he flat out doesn't care about uh, what the truth is and he just throws a little fib out there. And rather yeah. than giving someone the time to react or the time to call him out, he has this excellent pacing where he moves right on to either another questioner out there in the press or to another topic that he's ready to move on to. And Jonathan Swan came in there with an agenda. He straight up said, I'm not going to let this guy get away with this. When he says something like the pamphlets and the books, which makes absolutely no sense, I'm going to nail him on it and not let him move on. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. What pamphlets? What books? And Trump because, didn't have you know, a clue. you know how many books have been written about this pandemic that's six months old? Oh, God, there's a whole library full of them, I'm sure. Right. So, yeah, absolutely. It's it's nothing more than bluster, deflection, and then who's next? 
But guess what? There was only one person in the chair looking across from him on that day, so he just had to keep taking fire. Yeah, he sat there and he took it, and uh, I would never say that Trump accepted defeat, but he looked like he was uh, in a state of humility for one of the first times in a long time. And I, I really think this is uh, kind of building upon the interview that we discussed a few weeks ago that he had with Chris Wallace. Chris Wallace, a guy from Fox. Trump was probably expecting lob balls, but Chris Wallace has a, a little bit of a journalistic integrity. He's got a lineage in his family, and he didn't let him get away with some stuff. He didn't give him the normal uh, line of questioning he would get from OANN. He gave him some actual questions and didn't let him get away with anything. And I think that a lot of the other reporters out there are starting to learn from this. We're basically looking at maybe a one topic, one issue election if the pandemic keeps going in this direction. So it will not just be a referendum on Donald Trump. It will be on Donald Trump's handling of the coronavirus pandemic, which is to say not going well. The most famous lines from this goddamn interview are Trump saying it is what it is or that it's being handled as best as it can be, you know, considering and the and the considering means uh, considering who's president. Right. And <laughs> it's funny that that's such a, a an ironic foot and mouth moment for him. But at the same time, it's uh, as expected regarding the it is what it is line. He's referring to how many people are dying per day and for him to brush it off with such a meaningless tautology (laughs) as it is what it is, is strikingly upsetting to people who are like, do you even care? Because I forget who it was, but somebody likened it to Polly Walnuts basically going up to Tone and being like, hey, we had to do some things, Tone. Some bad things went down. You know what I mean? It is what it is. (laughs) That's right. So, unfortunately, I don't think that uh, Trump is, uh, he doesn't have the savvy that somebody like Tony Soprano does. Um, Absolutely not, but neither does Uncle Joe Biden. So let's get to him next. Yeah, let's, uh, I mean, it's not like we've got a guy on the left who's doing a whole lot better with the way that he's uh, doing stuff. Fortunately, he's not in the, the Oval Office right now, so he doesn't have as big of an impact. But every time Biden gets a chance, he sure as hell puts his foot directly down his throat right into his stomach. So you're saying he's not the orator that the man he served with was? He might be a little bit below Obama's level of speaking. <laughs> yeah, I'd agree. So uh, Biden, how about his uh, uh, how about his go- foot and mouth moment this week? Yeah, um, well, he's he's speaking to a group of uh, Latino voters, people uh, who he really is trying to win the vote for their demographic, and. In the process of him appealing to them, he managed to totally throw another demographic that he's trying to win over right under the bus. He's telling them that it's it's really great that uh, basically Latinos are a whole lot more diverse than, you know, African-Americans because they're not diverse at all. Right. I mean, that's not back of the bus. That is under the bus. <laughs> right, right to the bottom. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely terrible because I understand maybe what he was trying to get at. But at the same time, even if like voting would bear that out in data, you don't say that. And it's probably not even that true. So, I mean, it's absolutely not true. (laughs) So he's basically uh, back to the you're not black if you vote Trump line that he was uh, 
handing out a couple months ago because I kind of understood what he said, but he needed to be able to say it in a little bit better language. And that's just not him. He is uh, an old-timey guy who is basically the caricature that we see played on Saturday Night Live, but at least he's not an evil man. Yeah, he's basically, uh, like you said, he's, uh, I, I guess, a stereotype of uh, your grand relative that you have who, who means well, but still drops the random racist remark out of nowhere. And it's just because they're from a different time, right? But they're not running for president. And Joe Biden, Uncle Joe, you are. And you can't say stuff like that. And you can't keep expecting that you're just going to automatically get the African-American vote simply because you're a liberal if you keep doing this stuff. It's ridiculous. That's true. Although... um you can't expect the African-American vote to fall for the ridiculous ploys that the Trump campaign have been administering lately, namely having one of their biggest staffers or someone who was litigating for Trump just a week prior try to get Kanye West on the ballot in Wisconsin. So they're absolutely brazen in their attempt to siphon votes off from the black community, supposedly, from Joe Biden to, if not Trump, then a third-party candidate. They will stop at no means, or at no ends, to get what they need done. Um, You know, Biden is going to have a tough time in the campaigns against Trump. But if he keeps his cool, and if he stays on message, he can wipe the floor with him, just based on comparison alone. So we'll see how much he talks in the interim days between those between now and those events. But you're seeing um, he's not going to be making the trip to the convention anymore, just like Trump said he's not going to. So that means all of his responses are going to be more canned and more scripted and less off the cuff, which is definitely going to be better for him. Yeah, uh, Trump's efforts uh, to to smear uh, Biden and, and try to uh, sway the, the African-American vote away have been a little more than transparent. Um, obviously the Kanye West thing is ridiculous. They're blatantly just trying to siphon votes away. But uh, the bottom line is uh, Biden's senior moments and all of these things and Trump's usual record of saying everything and anything offensive has got both of these guys in a position where every time one of them has anything to say, they end up coming out in the news and looking worse. So I think the best strategy for both of their campaigns is to STFU. All right, guys, this is a brand new way we are bringing you the news. We've selected a couple stories that we think are some of the most important since the last time we've spoken to you, and we're going to be sharing them with you in rapid succession, or at least as quickly as we can get it out of our mouths. And without further ado, and in no particular order, let's melt it down. Alright, so, uh, NBC4 and Columbus on Tuesday had some really terrible news for everybody in mid-June. Dr. Amy Acton stepped down as the ODH director, taking a chief health advisor role with the DeWine administration, basically taking a back seat and out of the public limelight. Well, this week she announced that she is stepping down completely from government work, 
DeWine announced Tuesday that Acton will be returning to the Columbus Foundation, where she came from in February of 2019. Now, as we know that she drew tremendous praise, but stark criticism, as well as crazy-ass protests in front of her house just for trying to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And here we have now no Amy Acton in our government. So, Pete, what will you remember most from her time as director of health during this pandemic? Well, mostly, um, I, you know, it's really sad to see her go, I want to say, first of all. But uh, it's her professionalism. Uh, throughout all of the insane uh, hatred and, and backlash that she was getting just really for doing her job, um, she stood up in the middle of every podium and every interview and every time the spotlight was on her, and she gave us what she believed as a health professional, as a licensed doctor, the best advice she could to keep people safe during all of this. So my favorite things from her were when she was essentially talking to all the kids or whoever still is a kid at heart out there in the announcements, in the Wine with DeWine segments, she would liken putting on your mask as being a superhero. So when you go out there, make sure that you have your superhero costume on so that you can save the day in your own little way. And then one of the other great things that she used to do was use metaphors. And one of my favorite metaphors was of her precautionary measures equaling Swiss cheese. And so as long as you're stacking up enough layers of that Swiss cheese, you're adding to the prevention that you're going to be able to have when you walk out the door. So if you right. keep doing your social distancing, if you're wearing your mask, and if you're washing your hands, you're doing nothing but increasing your chances from cut for you know for coming home safe every day so i mean like this woman was an absolute treasure and it is really difficult that she's going to be leaving the service of our state yeah we really uh, appreciated dr acton here in ohio at least most of us did and uh, she was uh, really a beacon of light when things felt like they were really scary right off the bat i felt confident having someone like her behind us so uh let's uh give a, an unhappy farewell and best wishes to Dr. Amy Acton. 100% agree. Best wishes, Dr. Amy. Next up, we have a Washington Post story from Friday. Now, I don't know if you heard about this one, but there were two students from an Atlanta suburb high school who were suspended for sharing a picture of crowded hallways with students who had no masks on whatsoever on social media. Now, on Friday... The school lifted their suspensions and the uh, principal for the high school said that they were sorry for any negative attention that this has brought upon her and that in the future they would like for her to come to the administration with any safety concerns that she may have. And they also confirmed that they will have no further disciplinary action or any on her record and she can return to school on Monday. So what I would like to know is, is this an attack on whistleblowers or just upholding school policies? Because I don't know if they have been checking to see if everybody's sharing things on Snapchat or just so happened to be someone who was outing them for bad precautions during coming back from the coronavirus. Well, it's hard for me to believe that there would only be one person who would share a picture like that in this day and age of social media. I'm sure there are plenty of pictures out there exposing that, no, people aren't wearing masks or uh, I, I don't want to I really don't like the term whistleblower. I think it gets overused. What I think this is, is I think this is a, a school that's in the state of Georgia. 
I think that they have their own uh, convictions, their own ideologies, whether or not they're correct. I'm not going to speak on that. Um, but what I, what I will say is I don't think that uh, this reversal of suspension would occur if it didn't become a national story. Uh, now, we did see a story come out subsequently that there were nine positive tests at that school. And obviously, we would like to see none. But I think you have to accept the fact that in schools, with all these cohorts running around together, you're inevitably going to see some pockets of spread. But the question is, are they doing enough to keep it to a minimum? So this particular school was supposedly on split shifts and some kind of like split release to where half people would be able to leave the building at one time to keep from overcrowding. But if you looked at these hallways, they were absolutely jam-packed. I wonder how many people on a regular day during regular situations would be in that hallway because they didn't look like they could fit many more. So from my perspective, basically this is just one more issue that we're going to look at in the in the greater scheme of whether or not having students in school is going to be a safe thing. They're going to be crowded no matter what you do. And masks, they're not going to be on every student. They're not going to be on every teacher. Uh, maybe in some schools they will, but not in every school in the nation. So we're going to have these problems. You're going to have uh, th this uh, virus spreading among students and potentially spreading among the, the families that they come home to. All right. Uh, this is an AP story from Thursday, which I know you are very familiar with. Uh, our fair governor and our fair weather governor at times, Mike DeWine, tested negative for COVID-19 on Thursday after testing positive earlier in the day before he was about to meet with President Donald T. Rump, according to a statement from his office. His wife, Fran DeWine, also tested negative, as did his staff members. Now, they underwent a different type of test in Columbus, one considered to be more accurate than the rapid test result, which showed DeWine to be positive for COVID-19 just ahead of his planned meeting with the president in Cleveland. So my question to you, how likely is it that DeWine faked his positive test so that he wouldn't have to spend his afternoon with the bloviating orange ogre in a girdle? Uh, the premise of that is absolute nonsense. I saw a lot of that going around on social media. People, uh, usually people on the right, were quick to say, oh, DeWine doesn't want to meet with Trump. So, yeah, he faked uh, having COVID. And uh, after the second Trump got on a plane to leave, he was like, now I'm all good. Um, this is, These are people <laughs> who didn't bother to educate themselves whatsoever regarding how these tests work. Uh, the, 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 the virus tests that are out there are varied. They're, they're trying to get a certain test, this rapid test, which is the one he took first so that he was able to actually meet with the president. They're trying to normalize this test. It's not common yet. It's new, but it's not really a test. It's an antigen test that is more of a screen. It works more like a pregnancy test uh, in, in function. Essentially, um, it tests for certain components in your body that will be reacting to the virus that it, when given enough time, they will always be positive. Now, a negative result from the antigen test, if you are good to go with a negative result, you are almost certainly good to go. Those are very accurate. However, a positive test is not uncommon to show up false. So, if it does happen to show up as a false positive... You go ahead and you get the, the more accurate test, which is what the people have been getting in Ohio this entire time, which is the PCR test. Literally tests for the uh, components of the, the virus itself. 
This is accurate, but you only need to get it in a case like this where you maybe have a false positive. Maybe you don't. Maybe it's a real positive. But using this screen is a really fast and easy and non-invasive way to exclude people right off the bat to know that they're safe and they're okay to be out. This is a good thing. It's a better thing. And Ohio just ordered 500,000 more of these tests so that people can know if they're negative. Uh, the tests are working as they're supposed to. And the reason we know this, we found out the very same day that the false positive test he got on the antigen test was actually a false positive because we have that PCR test. Interesting. And so what do you think that means if the people who are in and around Trump's orbit are getting a less reliable test? Does that put the president at risk? Potentially. But uh, we don't we don't really know enough about Trump's lifestyle and how, how, how many precautions, how safe is he living his life? Uh, I would say... I would say probably, yes. Um, I don't know how uh, Donald Trump actually feels about this virus. I know what he tells his base. I know what he says to the country. But privately, as a a 73-year-old man, I would guess that Donald Trump is uh, as scared of this virus as a lot of other elderly people are in this country. Yeah, I would think that his personal beliefs on this vary from private to public in terms of exposition. In the same way, his opinion on people who drive diesel trucks and uh, stomp around in the mud all day for a living. So needless to say, he doesn't feel that great about them until he meets them to his face and needs their vote. Okay, so we've seen a whole lot of things moving on here with Donald Trump lately that almost seems like he gives a damn about the people out there in this country. Um, Now... I'm not going to talk about what previous presidents have done, but he has uh, signed orders to try to uh, prevent things like human trafficking or rather to uh, help uh, some of the the victims of human trafficking. Um, And he just recently signed a bunch of executive orders uh, to try to get some more relief uh, for people affected uh, employment wise by the uh, coronavirus. Um, uh, Congress couldn't get another stimulus plan done. So Trump went out there and he found us some uh, some way to, to, to get ourselves another uh, $400 a week check and uh, hopefully uh, some kind of a, a tax relief going on for people who are actually employed. Um, and we'll talk more about that in a second. But all of this stuff that he's doing right now, do these actions, which are extremely transparent in the year that is an election year, change the minds of any of the people who are conflicted between him and Biden? That is a pretty good question because when I was looking at the fact that he was signing these executive orders, all I was thinking to myself was, well, that is a really sneaky way for the Republicans to basically absolve themselves of having to do any of the heavy lifting of going through the legislative process and then just saying, hey, Don, why don't you come in here for the save and you can get the win and all the, <laughs> all the credit. I mean, I think it's absolutely ridiculous. Like, not only that, but, like, he is actually limited in what he's able to do. So, like, my my likening is to just an expanding um, executive powers overreach that he just keeps, you know, adding on to. So, I mean, his predecessor, Barack Obama, used executive orders to keep all the DACA children 
in the country and able to uh, maintain their citizenship status. And then Trump actually came in and tried to revoke that. Well, it turns out it became a lot more difficult to undo it than it was for Obama to do it. So in and of itself, that was a good thing. But then he actually found out all these other things he was able to do with executive orders, and this being one of them, which is essentially... Uh, it's going to be fought in the courts, but I mean, there is like some good and some bad to it. Now there are some student loan relief actions that will be helping some people immediately, but, um, I didn't see anywhere in there for a second round of stimulus, which is something that Congress should have been able to agree upon and get passed as soon as possible. Considering the last $1,200 that you got was months ago. And if you don't, uh, you know, if you can't get the unemployment insurance, then that's all you've been able to live off since. Uh, and not only that, but he's lowered the benefits. It's right in the middle of where they were going to have it. The Republicans wanted to bring it down to 200, and the Democrats wanted to keep it at 600. So he shot the middle for 400. But the difference is, is that now states have to chip in for 25% of it. And not only that, but you have to get a brand new system in place to administer these benefits and um, not to say that states can't do it but they are already under financial duress so it's going to be very difficult for them to get this system in place and then also be able to pay for a quarter of the benefits uh yeah it blows my mind that we've, we're at uh, the, the last few months of uh, Trump's first term as president, and I still don't think he understands exactly what kind of power his executive orders have. It's, it's hilarious that he seems to think that he's got some kind of a uh, dictatorial authority to just come out and say, well, Congress couldn't get it done. Boom. It's done. Like, that's not how it works. That's not how the law works. But... I think that he's trying to paint himself in a more altruistic light right now. And I don't know that Americans are going to uh, completely buy it, especially when a lot of the things he's doing seem to be, um, if you look behind the, the scenes, uh, they're cl very clearly just being put on the table right now to try to win this election. He's pulling out all stops. And uh, I referenced earlier that he was trying to uh, do some stuff with uh, payroll tax cuts. Um, it's literally been floated out there that he's going to try to run his campaign on the grounds that, yeah, they're going to be tax cuts. Uh, I'll make sure that they're cut if I'm elected again. But if they're not, uh, or if I'm not elected again, then they're going to have to be paid back by the voters. It's literally unconstitutional to do something like that. But these are the measures that his camp is trying to take right now, uh, you know, amongst other things like uh, completely overhauling the post office because he's worried about voting. Uh, he's, he replaced the postmaster with a, a, some guy named DeJoy, who was just a huge Trump supporter and knows nothing about the post office. I think at this point, people are starting to see, and I hope they are, that all this guy's really trying to do with anything right now is just win in November. Sure, he wants to win at all costs. Uh, now that payroll tax cut looks like it's just going to be deferred. It's not actually going to go away. So you will have to, you know, rob Peter and pay Paul at some other point. And um, I think the most egregious of his executive orders thus far was getting money for the wall. So once he found out that there was no way in hell that he was going to be able to get it through Congress, 
He just took the money from the Pentagon and said that, listen, this is part of national defense and we're already using it for something else. Uh, so, Or we already had it earmarked for something else. So you might as well use it for this because this is an impending doom scenario that we just have to make sure we have these big, beautiful walls built in time for. It must have been for the caravan that never arrived because <laughs> all it was was to try to score another point. And uh, that's what you're seeing here. And we have to say that um, I actually tried to get the director of my local county board of elections on this week for an interview. And she was too busy, but I think I'm going to be able to get her for next week's show. And I'm going to be able to ask her some really important questions about what we're looking at between now and November and possibly thereafter. Because as we know, there's going to be just as much trouble possible after the election takes place as beforehand. And like you were saying, the post office has a lot to do with both, you know, before and after. Because what you were seeing across the country is a cut in hours and also a, um, a cut in available overtime. And so when you have more to do and you have approximately a thousand percent more mail-in ballots coming in, there's going to be a lot more mail to handle and to sort. And if they want to try and rig this thing, getting rid of the efficiencies that the post office might have had or any of the funding that the Democrats were trying to get to keep the post office solvent at least until November are going to be out the door and they're going to be causing major problems. Agreed. So uh, looking forward to hopefully getting that interview. And uh, we're just going to have to uh, pay attention the next few months because... It's going to be pretty hectic now, and it's going to stay hectic after the election is over. There you go. Stay hectic, my friends. <laughs> All right. Our next one is a Politico article that we were just looking at. Um, I thought this was kind of ridiculous because apparently Trump's campaign has knocked on a million doors each week, and Biden's is knocking on zero. Now, both campaigns are funneling millions of dollars into their field programs, and Trump victory has over 1,500 full-time staffers across 23 states, and it has required all of them to read Groundbreakers, how Obama's 2.2 million volunteers transformed campaigning in America. An interesting read for that cohort, if I may say so. So the RNC say they will add an additional 1,000 people by the end of September to focus on door-to-door getting out the vote. Now, obviously, a lot more people are hesitant to have people knocking on the door during their pandemic, and a lot more people are getting their information online for better or for worse these days. But the question is, do you think this approach could give Trump a leg up in targeting the swing voters that each uh, campaign so badly needs? It's really hard to say because uh, as antiquated of a thing as door knocking seems to be, you know that it's still got to have an impact on some people in America. Now, the question is, which Americans are we talking about? Swing voters, yes, perhaps. But I tend to look at people who are still kind of being swayed by kind of older tactics like the the face-to-face with someone who knocked on your door um, and even phone calls to some degree, which I know Biden's campaign is still kind of leaning on because let's face it, you have to do these kind of things. I, I would venture to guess that a lot of people who are still, um, 
looking at a decision and someone knocking on their door, they were probably leaning on Trump already anyway. I think Trump voters are the people who are answering their doors, looking to shake hands and and talk about the guy they want to have a beer with to be president and all kinds of uh, completely dated uh, concepts in terms of uh, who they're going to vote for. I myself, uh, likely I'm going to vote for Biden. I don't even answer my door when it's being knocked on by somebody I don't know. Exactly. And so not only is uh, shaking babies and kissing hands antiquated, but it's (laughs) damn near, it's very dangerous these days as well. Uh, So you're going to have people, and I hate to say this, but your average Biden voter slash progressive slash liberal slash Democrat is a bit more informed and a bit more scientifically up to date. So they're going to be a little more wary of those type of tactics. Um, Now, the Trump campaign can go out and try to sway as many people as they want with those type of, you know, practices. It's just not going to land on the people who don't think it's a good idea to do that to begin with. Yeah, it's just uh, I myself consider uh, I consider being progressive an important part of my life. And uh, if I see someone standing at my door with a clipboard, I'm looking for that button that Mr. Burns had that says release the hounds because there's no chance I want to talk to this guy. Right now, I believe that they are supposed to be wearing masks when they go out. But then how Trumpy are you if you show up on my doorstep with a mask? You look like a total puss. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Uh, I guess they're looking for those swing voters who are uh, still wear masks, but still uncertain. Um, I don't know how much of a difference this is going to make at the end of the day. I tend to think that most people at this point have uh, already kind of made up their mind. But what do I know? All right. Now, this one is from a source that I had never heard of before. Now, do you know what BGR stands for? Uh, Blue, green, red. Close. Boy Genius Report. Now, the Boy Genius Report had a little reporting on vaccines. And so it said that Trump insisted, no doubt aggressively so, which I thought was funny, on Geraldo Rivera's radio program on Thursday that a coronavirus vaccine is possible before the November 3rd presidential election date. Now, I would like to say parenthetically that Dr. Fauci said that if it happens, that is not because of any presidential political pressure whatsoever. And yet I digress. Um, There is one aspect of a vaccine that's starting to be talked about, which now represents bad news for a broad slice of the American population. And that includes people it believes a successful corona vaccine won't be able to help, and that is the obese. And so the question is, how long will it take before Americans are comfortable and willing to get the vaccine? But more importantly, what do you think about the findings that it will leave so many people still susceptible? Well, what I think is that uh, those two things are going to go hand in hand. Uh, no one's going to be comfortable with a vaccine that they don't think can help everybody. There's going to be questions. People don't understand science. A large uh, part of our population right now doesn't even trust science. So the fact that we're going to say, well, yeah, you weigh too much. So, you know, this vaccine doesn't work for you. I can just see the memes just flying off the uh, online printer press and the, the type of conspiracies we're going to hear based on uh, literally the fact that no one understands the, the, the science of vaccines in general. Now, we are, are racing uh, to get this vaccine. Uh, the name of the uh, original 
uh, project in the U.S. was, uh, I think it was Project Warp Speed. So Correct, I don't know how safe Captain. that feels when most vaccines <laughs> uh, tend to take years and years. But um, it's yeah, Operation Warp Speed. Couldn't it be speed, Project actually, it? Yeah. Prudent uh, Perfection? <laughs> that would have been right. a lot better. Yeah, how about Operation Let's Get This Shit Right? Yeah, so, I mean, unfortunately this week, Fauci was talking about how there certainly won't be a vaccine that is what they would consider to be extremely effective. And I think that was like either 98 or 89% effective for the populace. He said that they were basically hoping that you would be able to get something 70% effective, but that the CDC was going to release it to the public, whether it was 60 or 50% effective, which is a little disconcerting. But I guess if you have 10 to choose from and you get all of them at once, then you're going to be covered all the bases. I don't know. But here's some numbers for you. Now, this is straight from that BGR article again. Early on in the coronavirus pandemic, the U.S. Center for Disease Control warned that people with a body mass index greater than 40, including people considered more than 100 pounds overweight, are at the greatest risk of becoming severely ill from the coronavirus. Now, that designation encompassed almost 10% of Americans. But as we learn more about the virus, who it affects, and how federal officials expanded that category of people to include anyone with a body mass index of at least 30 which broadens the amount of U.S. adults at most risk from the coronavirus to more than 42% of Americans. So not only are our chickens coming home to roost, so are our nuggets. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Um, I don't know really uh, how I feel about the vaccine yet. I'm going to have to wait to see when it comes out. I'm going to have to look at the science because there are so many different vaccines being uh looked at and and they we've got different countries competing which i don't know is a a really safe way to go about this process but when one is finally produced and it start starts to be manufactured we've got the one right now being tested obviously eventually we're going to land on something that is going to be probably approved by the fda um and at that point i guess we can reconvene and we can decide what we think about the vaccine but right now i'm actually in the camp where I'm a little bit pessimistic about how I would feel taking the beta test of this vaccine. I am right there with you. There is no reason to rush, especially if you're going to continue to do the proper things and keeping yourself safe from catching the virus. So if you're going to do everything right, you might as well just sit tight and wait for more conclusive evidence to come in about these things that are undeniably being rushed to the public. All right, last point in the meltdown is an article from the Detroit Free Press. Now, according to Pete Thamel of Yahoo Sports, all options are on the table for the Big Ten football season. And they say there's some presidential momentum for canceling the fall football season. It's unknown if there's enough support to make that decision today, he reported Saturday. But the president's meeting comes hours after the Mid-American Conference, which includes Eastern Michigan, Central Michigan, Western Michigan, became the first from the FBS to cancel its entire season in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. So, you know, with that being said, how do you feel about the prospects of college football in the spring does that sound like something you'd be interested in and what do you plan to do consequently this fall instead to pass the time well i don't feel good about college football happening uh this fall uh there's been a lot of talk 
Um, the Mac canceling was a big deal. Uh, obviously, uh, Pete uh, Pete Thamel uh, is coming out of Detroit, so he mentions the three schools in Michigan, but we've got about six schools in Ohio in the Mac. So we're right in the middle in the thick of all of this. So are we going to get it? I don't know. There's been talk that uh, schools like uh, Ohio State, Michigan, Penn State, and Nebraska, uh, if the Big Ten decides to cancel, they may play in the Big 12, believe it or not. I don't know how that would work either. Uh, ultimately, I don't think it's gonna. I don't think it's gonna happen. Now, to answer your question, I don't like the idea of football in the spring at all. So, what are they? Gonna, they're gonna have a season in the spring, and then another and then one a in the season fall? in the fall. Right? Yeah. That's crazy. How, what kind of turnover is that? That doesn't make any sense. Um, I, I <laughs> when do you have the draft? Like right in the middle? <laughs> yeah. It, it, exactly. I don't. I don't know. I can't fathom how that would work, and I also can't fathom myself watching a football season going on like in the middle of May or something. I, I don't know. So no, I'm not for that. I'd rather just go back to normal and I don't have any kind of expectations of being able to watch my beloved Buckeyes this year. Yeah. Now it's in my book, it's going to be a lost season and they really shouldn't try to like gather up their broken eggs and reconstruct them in the spring. Um, now this was like on the heels of, I think it was the pac 12 and then the big 10 having these giant group chats where all the players were talking amongst themselves, not with any administration or coaches present in them, about what type of provisions and protections they were going to be assured of having if they were to go forward in playing. So I think that there were a couple of benchmarks that the Big Ten didn't meet to move from like Phase 2 to Phase 3 or Phase 3 to Phase 4, which essentially meant they weren't able to go to padded practices yet so if you can't even get to there, and you're supposed to be starting play in under a month, there is no way you're ready to go. Not only that, but like the people in Stanford were super worried about the fact that they were going to have to play people from schools that didn't have any of the protections that they themselves were going through. So what good is it if you're keeping yourself safe, but you're then going to go play a dirty team, essentially? Right. Uh, it, it makes absolutely no sense, and so... Once you see these dominoes start to fall, all you're going to see are the proudest people hanging on until last, which will obviously be the Big Ten and the SEC being the most powerful conferences in the country. Yeah, uh, the richest tradition does lie in those two conferences, and um, I'm kind of shocked that there's already discussion going on uh, with the, the Big Ten uh, being the first conference. I thought for sure the Pac-12 would have already bowed out by the time the Big Ten discussed it. So... Uh, I'm okay with it. I, I've come to terms with it. I've accepted it. And I, I think it's time for them to accept it too. Um, I know that football fuels, the money from football fuels the entire athletic program for many, many, many schools. But unfortunately, we are in a, a time of uncertainty. And this is just what it is. So what am I going to do this fall? I'm still going to watch horror movies. I'm still going to eat candy. I'm still going to enjoy the crisp air and I'm probably going to cry all the way to sleep every Saturday morning on my pillow. There you go. Maybe just right into a nice hot PSL. And, uh... <laughs> I'll find something. Um, I'll take up dominoes or something. I don't know. Last but not least, it's time for Born to be Mild's Parting Thoughts of the Week. All right, for my parting thoughts, I just have to say thank you to HBO for bringing out all the movies that I wanted to see all in one month, 
all for free, and now I have many a night filled with absolute awesome entertainment. So first was Ford versus Ferrari. Now this is what I liken to Fast first, Fast and Furious, Fast Furious 5, whatever you want to call it, except that this one has a plot. It has acting, it has historical significance, it has actual actors that are good and you want to watch. It was just fantastic. It's basically the story of Carol Shelby helping Ford Motor beat Ferrari in the 24-hour of Le Mans in France. It is highly recommended to anyone who loves motorsports, or loves Christian Bale, or loves Matt Damon, (laughs) Or loves American victory stories. It, I mean, it hits on all cylinders, pardon the pun. I can't wait to check it out. It's fantastic. So my next one is Jojo Rabbit. Now this one, I mean, can you imagine making Hitler a likable character? Well, this story does it. It's just unbelievable how they are able to tell the story of a child in Germany who is part of the Hitler Jugend at the very tail end of World War II and make it just the funniest, most uh, just relatable, uh, humanistic tale you've ever seen. And it has Scarlett Johansson in it as this young boy's mother. I can't believe what I saw when uh, just the, the type of tactics they employed in the making of this movie and the telling of this story. It was so inventive. Um, I, I, it was 10 times better than I thought it was going to be. And I was laughing out loud <laughs> probably every five minutes. And some of them were at lines that were delivered by Adolf Hitler. <laughs> so, uh, there's really no, nothing else to say besides that. And it is so absurd that you will just, you'll love it. There's, there's no one who won't love this except maybe actual Nazis. Yeah. <laughs> I remember laughing at Saddam Hussein in Hot Shots Part Two, so uh, all's good. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Dictators sometimes can really spin a yarn and give you a, deliver a punchline. <laughs> uh, last but not least is something I want to keep an eye on because it is coming out of NBA camps in China. Now, this is basically part of the eastward expansion after the reign of Yao Ming. So they have essentially G League over there, and they have some teams that have American coaches, but it's essentially Chinese players and Chinese coaches running it as well. And what we're seeing is major abuse, like kicking players, throwing balls right at their faces, Um, stuff that has some of these American coaches walking away from it. And... um, I don't know what they're going to be able to do to rectify this, but I know that the NBA is in a quandary when it comes to China because you saw what happened with Daryl Morey's fallout when he just wanted to say, I stand in solidarity with the freedom-loving people of Hong Kong. Right. And so apparently the reach in China is so large that their revenue is four times what it is in the United States over there. So it's not something that they want to just essentially get rid of in one fail swoop. But when you have things going on like putting Uyghurs on the plane or on trains to detention camps for an indefinite amount of time and all kind of other shady shit that they're up to and denying vociferously, I don't see how people don't start speaking up, especially now that it has come home to roost um, right in their own organization. So uh, some troubling stuff going on for a very popular sport over there. Mm hmm. Yeah, basketball is a lot bigger in China than what a lot of people uh, in the U.S. imagine. 
Uh, Yao Ming was not a, a one-off. There's a lot of a lot of dudes over there that are pretty tall and they're pretty good at balling. No doubt, no doubt. So I've got a few things I wanted to talk about, but uh, we're gonna go right off the heels of uh, some of the television that Ron has been catching up on. There's an amazing Frank Sinatra biopic on Netflix right now. It's called Sinatra All or Nothing at All. Um, obviously a lyric from one of his songs. Basically, it's just a two-parter, but each part is about two hours long. So you're looking at uh, two feature-length parts uh, uh, that are equally as good, and I watched them both in a row. Um, so wow. I spent about four hours in front of the TV while I was falling asleep, but I couldn't stop watching. Uh, there's no narrator. The entire thing is actually cut with quotes by Frank himself, by Frank Jr., and by uh, people that he knew throughout his life, like Ava Gardner. So um, th- these are uh, people who were close to him and clips of him on TV shows, actual uh, cuts of him uh, singing uh, live, intermixed with uh, just all kinds of other music of him singing. Uh, his final performance has been kind of cut up throughout and they sew the entire thing together into one cohesive narrative. And if you like Frank Sinatra, if you like the Rat Pack, if you love the stories of that time and that that whole uh, that whole 1960 uh, freewheeling, kicking, glamorous lifestyle that he was living, check it out because you won't be disappointed. I was amazed. The other thing I wanted to bring up: we drove down to Florida here, um, and I I can't help but always notice how many more billboards they have in the southern states than they do back up north. It's absolutely crazy how many billboards there are. They're like within That's where they get their news. A hundred feet of... <laughs> yeah, I swear they might. But you certainly know where you're going to buy your liquor because every billboard seems to be... And it's funny because they don't mind being uh, redundant. Like, if you've got an exit coming up where there is something that they really want you to come see, there's going to be like 19 billboards between the last exit and that one advertising it. Like you could get a screenshot of like five of them at once while you're driving down the road. And there was one for a Z and Z liquor store that just had these two girls on it. They were in different poses in every single billboard. And they were, some of them, they were holding guns. <laughs> they were proudly uh, giving discounts to veterans. And there was like, I, I don't know. At one point I could see like four of them in a row and each one spaced about 75 feet out absolutely hysterical but what was the best is you know you're getting down here in uh the real uh bottom half of the bible belt when you start seeing really really great billboards like every tongue will confess even democrats and there's a giant devil's pitchfork beside the word democrats i almost (laughs) spit out my drink when i read that one and i was like oh we're in georgia that's right yeah, it still stays ugly out all night there. Um, I mean, can I can I just throw one little nugget in here because I forgot to mention it at the introduction. Um, I sold my childhood toy box this week on Facebook Marketplace. And um, it was just way too giant and really beat up and I had no use for it. We have nice small ones here in the house for Vivian. But, I mean... This guy came to pick it up with his wife, and it was the scariest thing ever. They came in a truck that had the Constitution window sticker over the back window. You know that one? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. um, you know, the Blue Line, uh, Blue Lives Matter license plate. 
Okay. And uh, it also said uh, proud veteran or whatever. So I'm like, all right, okay. I, I, th- I see we're dealing with a certain character here. Um, and he gets out in sweatpants and is gruff as hell, even when I say good morning and give him a greeting. And he proceeds to tell me that uh, he had the wife drive because his sleeping medication hadn't worn off yet. And yet he's got a giant fucking 45 caliber pistol on his on his side as he's coming to pick up a toy box. So uh, I don't know what things are going to be like in the future, but I want fewer of these transactions in my life if possible. <laughs> yeah, it, we're at a, a certain time in history where... Uh politically unaligning with somebody when you meet them can often be a, a bit of a scary moment. Um, <laughs> Who'd have thought, man? And so, I yeah, I want to close uh, the show on my final note. Uh, the reason I did come down to Florida this week is because uh, my beloved aunt, who was uh, living with my mother, her sister, when their house burned down, um, actually passed away. Unexpectedly. And um, for my mother, this has been a very trying time. Um, it, it's a trying time for everyone in 2020, but it does seem like certain people have gotten extra helping of gravy on their shit mashed potatoes, uh, that we've called this year. So in light of that, if you do have something good in your life to hold on to right now in 2020, you should make sure you hold on to it, especially if it's something like family times can be tough and family can be gone at any time. So anything you can find solace in throughout any time that you're feeling down, dark, depressed, confused, whatever it may be, do your best to do that and do your best to help out other family members, friends, and other loved ones when they need you to, because life is precious. Life is short and we're all in it together. Unlike the coronavirus. (laughs) Man. All right. So obviously I want to give you condolences on air and from all of our listeners here. Because uh, I know that's really tough. Um, But I also want to say, and on that note, make sure that, you know, as long as it's something that is for the good, we don't have to say that just because the world seems like it's going down in the dumps that we need to throw ours down there as well. Life is short, but you have to make sure that you're around as long as you can. So we don't need to go be out there being any more reckless than we have been. We need to maybe be a little bit safer and be a little bit more caring. And, you know, to your point that family means the most, well, if you don't have family, then those people that you love the most, you reach out to them. But if you do have family, as they say, you can't take it with you. So those people are the most important things in your life, not any type of material possessions or wealth that you might have. Um, So engage in those relationships even more than you have the day before, and everyone will be a little bit better off for it. That's right. Well said. And thank you for the condolences. So before we get yes, out of sir. here, we'll give the usual shout out to Ryan Little for our amazing theme song. We hope you enjoy it. And Ron, where can everybody find us? Damn near everywhere. Even under a rock. We have our podcast anywhere that you get podcasts. Obviously, Google Play and the iTunes Store. But on Stitcher Radio, iHeartRadio, and a plethora of other really cool podcast places. That's right. And uh, since half this country often lives under a rock, it's fortunate you can find us there. So until next week, I hope everyone stays safe and take care. Peace out. Peace out.